Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. We started last week as we're going through the churches of the Revelation. We started with the church at Pergamon. And I had a second part that we want to talk about today. Last week we saw regarding the church of Pergamon that the church of Pergamon was the church of compromise. The teaching and the doctrine of Balaam had overcome them. And Balaam had been the one who had told Balak, even though he couldn't curse him, he said, if you want to know how to ruin the people of Israel, just get the Moabite women to seduce them and cause them to worship idols. And that'll cause them to falter and fail. And that same doctrine, it says, in the church of Pergamon had, had come into it. And it began to be a church of compromise. And instead of standing in purity and righteousness, it was that kind of church. Now, here's the question. Why did that happen? Why was it this, this church became a church of compromise? Because of, of the part of what it says about the church in verse 15. Look what it says in verse 15. Jesus says to the church, Thus you also... Have some in the same way who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. He said he had two things against the church of Pergamon. One was they had absorbed and began to practice the doctrine of Balaam, which was this compromising lifestyle. And the second thing he says, and you've also adopted the practices of the Nicolaitans. Two times in these messages, he says that the Nicolaitan doctrine was looked at. And on every occasion, Jesus said he hates that doctrine. I hate what the Nicolaitans stand for. Well, what in the world is that doctrine? I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about that today, all right? But let's talk about where we are in regard to the church. The reason that there's a compromising church and the reason what happens is is based on this chart that I gave you. Remember the chart? I hope you've picked up that chart and you'll use it because I shared with you about the ages of the church. The first age of the church was symbolized by the church at Ephesus, and it was the apostolic age. From the time whenever Jesus ascended until the apostles all died at the end of that uh, century. Then that ushered in what is called the church of Smyrna or under the Caesar age or the church of persecution. Horrible persecutions happened in the time of the Smyrna church or in that age, which is about 100 to about 312 A.D. Now the church of Bergamon represents the third of those church ages. And it is the time of Constantine. Constantine comes into power in 312 A.D. And that time period goes out to about 590. And what happens in that time period is that the church gets married. The church marries itself, performed by Constantine, to the world, to government, and specifically to the Roman Empire. Did you hear that? The church gets married to the world and to the Roman Empire and to the nation. And God never intended and has never intended for the church to be a part of government or nation. 
What we are as a Christian, what we are personally, is our relationship with Christ. Amen? Now, are we to be involved in government and all this kind of thing? Absolutely. But we are never to be a national religion. And that's what happened in the time of Constantine. That's not what took place. Matter of fact, it's an interesting word, the word pergamon. The word pergamon comes from two Greek words. The first of those words is per, which means objectionable, disagreeable. And the second of those words is the word gamos, which is the word marriage. We know there is monogamy. Some people try to participate in polygamy. Gamos is the word for marriage. So if you take the word pergamon, it means this, an objectionable, disagreeable marriage. There's a marriage that's there that should not take place in that church, in that church age. And that's the marriage between the church and the government, the church and the nation. Well, how did that happen? Let me explain it to you. We'll go back through some Western Civ and through history and see if we can remember that. All right. The last of those emperors who was ruling during the times of the persecution was his name was Diocletian. Diocletian, whenever Diocletian dies off, there are three people who are vying to be the next Caesar. One of those was a powerful general named Constantine. They did not know who was going to be in power, so basically it became a civil war between all of those to who is going to rule. Now, Constantine was raised by a mother who was a Christian and a father who was sympathetic to Christianity, but he was not a Christian. When Constantine is going to battle, and he is going to his final battle to take one of those emperors, or those who suppose emperors who want to be in place, when he goes to that battle, it is said that Constantine supposedly saw a vision. He saw a vision in the sun, and when he saw that vision in the sun, some people say it's the cross that he saw, because that's what he put on all the shields after that. He saw this cross and, and what he heard in, in that and saw the words, it says, in this sign, you shall conquer. In this sign, you conquer. And so whenever he saw that, he made an agreement. And he said this, if I win this battle, if I win this war, then I will become a Christian. Well, he wins the battle. He wins the war. And supposedly, he becomes a Christian. You need to put an asterisk by that, okay? Supposedly, he becomes a Christian. Now, you know what that means? Instantaneously, something happens. Where Christians had been persecuted under all of those Caesars and had been mistreated, and we talked about bull in kettles and burned at the stake and all these things that happened to Christians. Whenever this Caesar, Constantine, says he's going to become a Christian, then all of a sudden, Christianity, instead of being persecuted for it, you become a model citizen. You become what everybody wants to be. It seems as though it's the popular thing now to be a Christian. You need to write that down. It's a popular thing, an accepted thing to be a Christian. The church eventually will become the national religion of Rome. Can you imagine that? It becomes the national religion of of Rome. Now, some people say, well, man, that's great and that's wonderful because the persecution stopped. No, that's not great and that's not wonderful. Because what happened is no longer now people involved in having a personal relationship with God and how you have that relationship with Him. And it is personally, my friend, 
But rather, because they were part of the nation, they just became Christian. The whole armies of Constantine would go and all be baptized in mass. Did you hear what that said? They would all be baptized in mass. Now, do you think every one of those soldiers, every one of that army had accepted Christ, put their faith and trust in him? No, they had just been baptized. They had been baptized because they were now a Christian nation. And because of that, all the armies were supposed to be Christian and therefore baptized. Therefore, everybody began to be pushed and and forced to become a Christian. If you were going to be, if not necessarily by physical force, but if you were going to be somebody in that nation, you had to be Christian. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Have you ever heard, let's talk about America as a Christian nation. You ever heard in the South, the Bible Belt, where if you're going to be anybody, you better be a Christian. If you're going to be somebody, you better be a member of somebody's church. You better join somebody's church. We're not talking about something far removed from what we're talking about happening right here and right there. Now, it might seem that 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 works out well, but it doesn't work out well at all. Because let me tell you what happened in regard to the, the lives of people. The, the, the priest of all those false gods, remember we talked about Pergamon, there were all kinds of false gods on every corner there was a temple. Well, those priests who were the priests to all these false gods like Jupiter and Juno and Venus and Bacchus and all those, all of those, they were on Caesar's payroll. They were paid by the Roman government. So now that Caesar had become a Christian, Do you know what all of those priests had to do? You know what all of them chose to do? They all got baptized. They all got baptized. Why? Because they wanted to stay on the payroll. They had to be baptized. They had to become Christian if they were going to be a part of Caesar's payroll. Well, here's the problem with that. Those priests and those false gods, they took their temples and they made them churches. That's all they did took the temples and made them churches. The images to their gods, they now made images to their saints. The same practices and rituals that they had practiced in the worship of false gods, they used in the worship of this God. They bowed down the same way. They practiced the same ceremonies. Everything they did to the false god, now they did to Jehovah God. But their hearts haven't been changed. Their lives haven't been changed. They just become Christian because it's necessary for them to be on the emperor's payroll. And this is what Christianity began to look like. It was the establishment of the church. Before that, the church had been in infancy. Before that, it had just been started. It was the rags, and it was the poor people who were accepting Christ. And then they went through the persecution time, and it was the purest of all churches. It was the time when the church was more powerful and pure of any time. And so now, all of a sudden, something happens, and something takes place that establishes the church and makes it a part of the nation. And when that happens, and when that takes place, the church is stained, hurt, and hindered. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Constantine truly converted? Was he truly converted? Or was this just an amazing political ploy? A 
political ploy that he could use to, to take the people and to wrap them around in the context of Christianity. Or more important than that, was this a scheme of the devil? A scheme of Satan whereby he would seek to hinder the work of the church in a new and a different way. I'm here to tell you, I don't believe Constantine, based on some things I'm about to share with you, was legitimately converted. Now you say, you can't judge him. I know that. I'm not judging, but I just examine his fruit. Amen? (laughs) I'm just going to examine the fruit of his life. What what's I'm about to tell you. I don't think he was genuinely converted. I, I think he probably did use it a political ploy because he knew about Christianity. But more important than anything else, I think it's the scheme of Satan. Whereby he knew that he could hinder, stain, and mar the work of the church. If he would just make it something that people became a part of because it was part of the nation. Or became a part of because it was the acceptable thing in society. But lost the very essence of Christianity. Which is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That you and you alone can have. It's not something that your, your nation can do for you. It's not something your state can do for you. It's not something your mom and daddy can do for you. It's something that has to happen in your heart and in your life. It's not something the church can do for you. It's what has to happen in your heart. And in your life. And if we lose that, and when we lose that, then the old, old scheme of Satan is worked out perfectly planned, perfectly planned because he says they think they have it, but they don't have it at all. They think they have it, but they don't have it at all. Well, you say, how do you know that Constantine was not a Christian? Let me share a few things with you. Write these things down about Constantine. These are historical facts. He kept all of his heathen and pagan superstitions. He wasn't a bit different after he got saved than whenever he was lost. He planned to combine the worship of Jesus with his favorite God, Apollo. Matter of fact, he so loved Apollo and wanted to embrace Apollo with Christ that on his coins, on the Roman coin... He would have the picture of Apollo and the name of Christ. Not only that, he ordered the observance and ordained the observance of Sunday as the day of Christian worship. Did you know that? But he required of it to be called Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-Y, not S-O-N-D-A-Y. Because that was the day that the sun god was worshipped. Not only that, he brutally murdered his oldest son. While being emperor, brutally murdered his oldest son. He refused to be baptized until right before his death. Because he believed that baptism is what washes away your sin. And he was going to sin all he wanted to and make sure he got it all washed away right before he died. Well, I'm here to tell you, baptism's important, amen? And baptism's a wonderful sign of what Christ does in your heart. And we're going to baptize next Sunday morning over in the other service some of those who've, been, who've made their decisions here. So come over the first part of that service and watch them be baptized. The baptist here is not going to be here for a month or so. So we're going to do it over there. Baptism's important, but baptism doesn't save you, friend. You can be dunked 50 times and it ain't going to save you. 
The water does not wash away sin. It's the blood of the lamb that washes away sin. And not only that, he referred to himself as Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus. Two things important about that. One is he meant that he was going to be willing to accept, just like all the other Roman emperors, that once he died, he would be worshipped as a god. That doesn't sound real Christian to me. What do you think? But he's willing to be accept the worship as a God once he died, plus the fact that he calls himself the bishop, the high priest. And he becomes the one who is the high priest over the church. The emperor is now controlling the church, and he is the Pontifex Maximus, or what will eventually be called the Pope. The Pope. And this, my friend, is the beginning of the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, hold on a second. I'm not here to criticize Roman Catholics, all right? But here's a fault of Roman Catholic theology. You do not get to go to heaven because you join the church. And that's the same thing that's true in a Baptist theology. You don't get to go to heaven because you join the Baptist church. God is not going to be checking off who's coming to heaven looking at a Baptist or Catholic role. Amen. Amen. It's whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And one of the problems with the Roman Catholic Church is because it's all focused about the church. That whenever you're the age of 12, you go through catechism, you take first communion, and you are a part of the church. But talk to many Catholics about it, and they really don't understand about that personal relationship with Jesus. That's what matters most is the personal relationship with Jesus. This established the Roman Catholic Church, which was the church wed to the government, the church wed to the nation, the church wed to politics, the church wed to power. And in the confines of that, over the next generations, the the next church, Thyatira, talks about the Dark Ages. I hope that you're smart enough to remember what the Dark Ages were about and all the things that were taking place under the auspices of the Roman Catholic Church. It was a dark, dark time, spiritually. And I'm not trying to find fault with anybody. What I'm trying to help you understand is that old Satan thought, if we could wed these things together, and and, and Christianity becomes, and the church becomes a part of the nation, and and it's all about that, but it's not about a personal relationship with Jesus. It's, It's not about letting him save you and change your life. It's not about that at all. Then Satan knew that he had a powerful tool. A powerful tool. Well... You might say, well, Brother Mac, what has that got to do with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? I'm glad you asked, because let me help you understand it. Whenever Jesus says he hates that doctrine, what does he mean? Well, write these words down. Nicolaitans come from two words. The first is the word, and you all know this word, Nike. Nike. The winged shoe, the victorious winged shoe. You, you know, that's, you, you've seen Nike. That's the picture of being victorious. And the other word is the word laos, where we get the word laity or where you have the word people. And the picture of the Nicolaitans is this. It is a doctrine where there is an exalted group of people. Someone who's exalted and lifted up as though they are victorious and conquering group over someone else. 
And what that's specifically talking about, my friends, it talks about the danger of an exalted priesthood. An exalted group of people who are going to be the spiritual leaders. What's a dangerous thing when spiritual leaders will come and say, listen, I will be the one who forgives you of sin. (laughs) Or I'm going to be the one who excommunicates you from the family of God. Or I am the interpreter of scripture. One of the reasons the dark ages happened is because the church said at that time, we will tell you what scripture means. You don't have the scripture in your hands. We will tell you what it means. Well, whenever something gets exalted in that regard, that it's going to be higher and greater and above everybody else. And the laity is down here, but the exalted group, that is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said, I hate it. Strong is word. I hate it. Why would Jesus hate that so much? Because it is so unlike him. He is the poor carpenter. The poor carpenter who died on the cross to save every person. To offer an invitation to every person. To give every person the privilege and opportunity of coming into a relationship with him. And here's this poor carpenter who talks to the rags of those people who are the rags and says, You are acceptable who is looking at a priesthood who is now representing him, and in that priesthood representing him are acting as though they are a class above everybody else. And Jesus hates that. The message of the gospel is for everybody. The word of God is for everybody. Salvation is for everybody. And there's nobody that you have to go through other than Jesus to be saved. He is the high priest and the only one you need. You don't need anybody else. For see, the priesthood now and, and the Christians now had exchanged the rags of persecution for the silk and the high life of the empire. And that's not where God wants us to be. The leaders of the church are now walking around in robes with gold tassels and everything. About You say, well, Brother Mac, you're up there in the three-piece suit. Why are you talking about that? There's a big difference in what I'm doing and what they did. I'm not wearing what I wear because of who I am. I wear what I wear because of who he is. You understand that? I don't wear what I wear because of who I am but because of who he is. And every person is welcome. Every person has that opportunity. And Jesus says, that's why I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What did did Jesus call the the messengers and the, the ministers of his church? What did he call them to be? He called them to be what? Servants. Servants of all. If you want to be greatest in my kingdom, you'll be the servant of all. That's what he called us to be. But based on the Roman Empire experience and what has happened in this time of the church of Pergamon, this age of the church points out the danger of having 
a church consisting of people like Constantine. And who are people like Constantine? Listen, people like Constantine are those who become an unconverted, unbaptized Christian. Did you hear that? There's a danger in becoming an unconverted and then sometimes unconverted and unbaptized believer. And the reality of it is, if you're unconverted, you are unbaptized. (laughs) Even if you've been in the water five times. And there's such a danger for the church. If we believe that being a member of the church is all it takes. Ms. Rosalie McElroy is going to come now. She's going to share a testimony. She messaged a few weeks ago. She talked to me and she said, I feel like God wants me to speak and share my testimony. And I told her, I said, well, just wait, because there's a place where I want you to share that. Come here. And she's going to share this testimony. Is that all right? Okay. To begin with, just so you, in case you don't know me, which you probably don't, I'm Rosalie McRoy. I'm married to Bobby Jack McRoy. We have six children, 13 grandchildren, and uh, 12 great-grandchildren, and one on the way. Um, we have, did I say we had six children? I, I, I don't know, but anyway. Um, first of all, I want to thank God for the privilege of, of coming and speaking in a church that's filled with so many awesome Christians and God's allowing me to share my testimony. And I just want you to know this is, just don't pay any attention. This is not about the messenger. It's about the message. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, I never remember not knowing about Jesus Christ because I was taken to church from the time I was a tiny little child. My first memories of the church of the nursery with the little doors with the half windows, you know, where uh, little children are below, but the windows are above. And I I just, I can see that today at the halls of, of the nursery. But anyway, I grew up in a Presbyterian church. My family, uh, my family was a family of Christians, and I was raised in the Presbyterian church. In the Presbyterian church, as in uh, Constantine's life, uh, at the age of 12, uh, we went to a class, um, and we memorized the catechism. And at that age, you just automatically, after memorizing the catechism, you became a member of that church. So I was a Christian and very active as a young person. And then when I got married, I had been taught that when you're married, you follow the leadership of your husband. He's to be the spiritual leader of our homes. So I joined the Baptist church. And I loved the Baptist church because Presbyterian church I grew up in was very formal. You went in and you sat down and you listened. Well, the Baptist church, as you know, they're very friendly and they reach out and just love you. So I love the Baptist church, but to become a member of the church that my husband was a member of, I had to be baptized. So I was baptized, not because I felt led by the Spirit to be baptized, but because that's what quote, I was supposed to do in order to become a part of the Baptist church. 
So being married and beginning to have children, uh, I became a very busy young mother and wife, having one, two, three, four, five, six children. You can imagine just how busy my life was. But I wanted my children to be raised in the church like I was. So I was a, we were involved in everything in the church. Sunday school, Wednesday night, uh, every, everything. Um, but being a, a very busy mother, I didn't really have a lot of time to be still. And you, you people can all uh, understand that because y'all are even under more pressure probably than I was because I was a stay-home mom. But anyway, um, I began to, to, being in church all of my life, I had the Word in my, in my brain because, you know, the Lord says that His Word will not return unto Him void. So God had been planning His Word in my life all those years that I'd been in church. And this one verse began to come to me the few times that I got still. Are you really saved? If you die right now, will you go to heaven? But then I'd get busy. You know, busy being a mom, busy being a wife, neighbor, friend, all the things that we are. And then in a little while, that little voice would say, uh, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Are you really saved? And, you know, I thought, that is the devil. He is tormenting me. I've been in church all my life. I've taught Sunday school. I've worked in Bible school. I'm always at church. I'm this mother with all this little drove of children, dragging them to church, you know. And I said, yes, I know I'm a Christian. Okay, the thought would go away, and I'd be busy, 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 and here this little thought would come again. And it got, I'm ashamed to say, I don't remember the time frame, I was in my late 20s, but anyway, uh, this began to happen more and more frequent in my life, and I began to be unable to sleep at night. So finally, one night, 3 o'clock in the morning, I went to my den, and I just fell on my face, literally on the floor, and I said, oh my God, I want to be saved. If I am not saved, please Whatever, whatever I have to do to be saved, I want to be saved. And at that minute, a peace just completely swept over me. And I knew at that moment I was saved, that I was going to heaven. And I have never, ever doubted again. Um, but God told me, the key was, I told him, whatever you want me to do. See, all those years I had been doing what I'd been taught to do, what other people expected me to do, the right thing to do, but it was all, it was me. It was me doing all that. And 
And now I told God, whatever you want me to do. Because, you know, life is all about God. It's not about us. We're so privileged. You here today are so privileged that you, you know God. You know about God. That you have come to worship God. Um, I, I learned that um, up until then I thought life was all about me. But now I realize life was all about God. In Psalms 139, God tells us he knew us while we were still in the womb. God has a purpose for our life. Uh, Almighty God that created the world, y'all just need to just think about it. He created the world, the stars, the moon, the sky. He created you, each one of us. And he has a special plan for our life. But the only way that you can know what that plan is and fulfill that plan is to be saved. And to be saved, you have to have your sins forgiven. And the only way we can have our sins forgiven is to be uh, washed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. To believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ was born of a Virgin Mary, was, was uh, died on the cross, was raised, and he's in heaven today. And he didn't leave us like orphans. He gave us his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is with us always, no matter where we are, uh, what time, uh, where, or how. He is always in us, seeking to guide and direct us. And the only way we can know God's purpose for our life is to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that he can tell us what to do, when to do, how to do, where to do. It's not about doing. It's about having a personal relationship with God. We've been married in May 60 years, and I still don't know everything about my husband. So the only way we can know God's purpose for our life is to spend time with him. And, you know, we're all busy. We all have responsibilities. But we've got to spend time with God so he can communicate with us. And this old flesh, you know, we think our flesh is weak, but my flesh is strong. Because when the warfare comes, um, it's, it's, it's a warfare. It's not always yieldedness. Because this old flesh is going to be with us until we die. And I'm, I'm going to confess this morning to y'all that I'm really ashamed that um, when I found out I was going to be giving my testimony, all of our children and their spouses and some of our grandchildren were together about a month ago. And the Lord prompted me to share my testimony for the first time, because I was going to do this, I, used, I told them, y'all are going to be my guinea pigs. That was my excuse. And I shouldn't have had to have an excuse. My children know I'm a Christian. They know I pray. But they had never heard 
my personal testimony. And mothers and daddies and grandparents, the only worthwhile inheritance that we can give our children is salvation. We can work and make money and and have all kinds of material things, but they're not worth anything. They're going to be gone away. So don't be like me. Don't wait so many years to share your personal testimony with your children. Do it now, this minute, before it's too late. Well, amen. One last thing, and we'll have our invitation. There's a glorious promise that Jesus makes to the church of Pergamon. Last week we saw he said, I'll give you the hidden manna. The other thing he says he'll do is he'll give to them a white stone, a white stone upon which is written a name that you alone will know. The white stone is very important. Two things. One is, whenever there was a verdict in the ancient times, the way they would determine the verdict of somebody was the color of a stone. If somebody received a black stone, that meant they were guilty. If someone received the white stone, they were acquitted. Let me tell you what Jesus says. If you come to him, seek him, ask for his forgiveness, as Ms. Rosalie said, he'll give to you a white stone. That means that you'll stand acquitted. You don't have to go through anybody else. Jesus paid the price. Amen? And you're totally acquitted because he gives you that white stone. The other thing is a stone was also used as an invitation, an invitation or a reservation. And the idea of being written, your name being written on it is that Jesus is going to invite you to a great and glorious banquet. <laughs> that banquet is going to take place in heaven. Amen? And you have the opportunity of coming, and you have your own personal pet name he gives you on that stone. And when it's time to go into the banqueting room, this is your entry into that banqueting room. What a glorious promise Jesus makes. But he makes that to us saying, you have to find that in me. Not in the church. Not in the nation. Not in anything else. You find it in me. Do you have that relationship with Christ? I pray that you do. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.